Welcome aboard. Another session of the Dr. Joe Show. And as usual, I have a couple of questions to throw out at you. First of all, what is Piranha Solution? What is Piranha Solution? Next, what is the difference between fine silver and sterling silver? If you know the answer to those, 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. You know, it isn't often that uh, <clears throat> organic chemistry makes the headlines. I wish it did do that more often. Uh, I think it probably is my favorite subject to teach. At, uh, you know, uh, over the years, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many students I've had in organic chemistry, but probably something like 20,000. But uh, why do I talk about it now? There are two reasons for this. First of all, the uh, Nobel Prizes in chemistry were announced this week. And that is always a highlight, uh, you know, for any chemist when we find out who has been recognized by the Nobel community to uh, uh, have made the greatest uh, impact on, on chemistry. The Nobel Prizes, of course, were first awarded in 1901 at the behest of Alfred Nobel. Uh, Nobel was uh, a chemist himself, of course, best known for being the inventor of dynamite. Dynamite is uh, nitroglycerin infused into clay. Nitroglycerin itself was invented by Sanio Sobrero, few, uh, an Italian chemist, and it's a liquid. Nitroglycerin uh, is very, very explosive. It explodes on impact. You take a drop of it and uh, drop it you know, from uh, a height, maybe as little as a foot, and uh, it will explode. Some of you probably are familiar with the classic movie, Wages of Fear, which is all about transporting uh, nitroglycerin through the Andes. If you're not familiar with it, look it up. It is an absolutely fantastic movie. Anyway, uh, Alfred Nobel uh, made a lot of money from the uh, sales of dynamite, which were used for construction, mostly building tunnels, uh, building uh, excavation for buildings, uh, etc. When his brother died, there was an obituary in the paper, and the writer of that obituary made a mistake, thinking that it was actually Alfred who had died, not his brother. And the uh, obituary called him the merchant of death, this, of course, upset Alfred Nobel greatly because uh, he had uh, intended dynamite to be used only for peaceful purposes. But now he recognized the possibility of using dynamite for the detriment of mankind, and he decided to leave his fortune, which was considerable, uh, to be given out in the form of Nobel Prizes every year to the top chemist, uh, physicist, um, physiologist, uh, uh, in the in the world, uh, the uh, prize would recognize their overall contribution, not necessarily in the year preceding the awarding of the of the prize. In any case, this year the uh, twenty twenty two Nobel Prize in Chemistry has been awarded to Doctors uh, Barry Sharpless. Of uh, he's a, Sharpless is is an American. He's at the Scripps Institute. 
Morten Meldal, who works as professor of chemistry, University of Copenhagen, and uh, Dr. Carolyn Bertozzi, who's uh, also in California and uh, is at Stanford. And uh, they have been recognized for um, what uh, Barry Sharpless has called click chemistry. It's not so simple to describe, but uh, it basically is a method of joining two molecules together in a simple fashion, requiring no solvents other than water and uh, producing uh, minimal side products. It is a reaction that has been useful in uh, all sorts of organic syntheses, um, going from plastics to, to drugs, tremendously important. Uh, and uh, Carolyn Bertozzi put it to use uh, by allowing this reaction to what we call tag other molecules, that is to attach something to a molecule so that it can be followed. And she has followed certain molecules through biological systems. Now, the problem with doing studies in living systems, such as animals or people, is that uh, by introducing some sort of chemical you, that you're studying, you may be disrupting parts of the overall system. Well, it turns out that she has, whereby she can follow reactions that are going on in the body at a given time without disrupting the body. Now, th this is, of course, uh, an attempt to make a very complex uh, uh, reaction simple, but uh, it is important to understand that uh, chemistry is all about forging new bonds, joining together molecules, and anything that makes this easier and makes the products more predictable is worthy of attention, especially in this case where the reaction has all sorts of uses. There's a little story that also I want to share with you, which is about uh, Dr. Sharpless, who received a Nobel Prize for the second time. That is extremely, extremely rare. So he joins the likes of Marie Curie. <clears throat> he was first recognized in 2001 for another type of, of, of reaction. But the interesting uh, uh, sidelight to Dr. Sharpless's career is that he has done it all with one eye. In 1970, he was hired as a young professor at MIT in Boston. And uh, he actually still worked in the lab while he was a professor. This is something that is rarely done. Uh, professors supervise graduate students, but they rarely work in the lab. But Sharpless, uh, as a young prof, uh, was still carrying out his research, working in the lab, and uh, was... Um, certainly very, very uh, particular about safety, as he should have been, wearing safety glasses all the time. But one day, he was just leaving the lab, and uh, he organized his, his bench and uh, put down all of his safety equipment, including his uh, safety glasses, left it on the bench, and started to walk out of the door, uh, the lab door. But just as he was walking out, he noticed that one of his students was working nearby, and uh, he was just trying to seal an NMR tube. NMR tubes uh, are used uh, to, in an instrumental technique called nuclear magnetic resonance, whereby uh, a material is put into a tube, inserted into the machine, and that tells us something about the molecular structure of the of the substance. And uh, 
Dr. Sharpless just uh, looked at the students to see what, what he was doing and uh, asked to uh, look at it more closely. And the student just held up this tube and at that moment it exploded. The student was protected, he was wearing glasses, but uh, Dr. Sharpless, who was just walking out of the lab and, and going home, had left his safety glasses and was injured in one eye uh, dramatically. And in fact, he lost vision in that eye. And uh, he uh, has made a career out of uh, bringing up this story uh, to students all the time to show how careful you have to be in the lab that accidents can occur at the most inopportune times, times when you don't expect it. And his uh, motto has been, wear, a safe, wear safety glasses in the lab all the time, no matter what you're doing, no matter whether you think it is dangerous or not. So here is uh, a message from a double Nobel Prize winner, and uh, all chemistry students, uh, of course, should take this to heart because accidents can happen. And uh, generally in the lab, accidents happen uh, at times when you least expect them, such as walking out of the lab, going home, and just uh, taking a last look at what your graduate student is doing. So that's our, our story about the Nobel Prize this year. But there's another organic chemistry story that has been all over the news this past week. And that is about a professor who was fired from NYU, New York University, because students launched a petition against him saying that his exams were too difficult. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. As I was mentioning, uh, organic chemistry uh, was in the news this past week, not only for the Nobel Prizes, but also for a rather remarkable incident at uh, NYU, uh, that is New York University, where Professor Maitland Jones was fired because students had complained that his exams were too difficult. Now, this is a, a curious story and an interesting one. And uh, one has to be very careful about jumping to conclusions here without having all of the facts. So I'm just going to paint an overall picture uh, for you here. And uh, we may have to adjust this as more information is, is revealed. What uh, we do know for sure is that Professor Maitland Jones uh, was uh, a very, very um, revered professor of chemistry at Princeton University. Years ago, he retired from Princeton. Uh, and then uh, he took on a yearly position post-retirement at New York University to teach uh, a course in organic chemistry. This is not uh, unusual. Uh, he just wanted to, to keep active. And at the age of 84, he was still teaching a course in organic chemistry to a class of 350 students, most of them uh, pre-med. Now, Maitland Jones is a very respected professor. He wrote a textbook on organic chemistry, uh, which uh, has been uh, widely adopted by many other uh, lecturers. But in this instance here, we had this rather remarkable incident where 82 of his 350 students signed a petition 
suggesting that his exams were too hard, that uh, he was not very receptive, receptive to questions, and that he wasn't offering enough help to the students. They did not ask that he be fired, but the university uh, decided that he had to go, and he did not renew his contract, much to the concern of the NYU chemistry department, who maintained, including the chairman of that department, that Jones was a very good teacher, and there was no reason to fire him. Now, this brings up several interesting uh, issues. Uh, first of all, uh, were his exams really too hard? Uh, of course, without seeing this, I, I really cannot tell. I would love to see the exams that generated this, uh, this controversy. But also, uh, today we have a situation where a professor's uh, a career can be altered by student evaluations. And whether those evaluations are, are justified or not is, is, is questionable. I don't know whether or not uh, Professor Jones uh, was adequate in, in addressing students' concerns or, or not. But somehow it seems to me that, that his firing, based on a, uh, some uh, data that was put together by students in, in, a, in a petition, which may or may not be accurate, uh, somehow I think that this uh, is, is, uh, is not justified. But we'll have to see whether or not there's anything more to this story. But these days, you know, it turns out that, that uh, uh, universities are looking at students, especially in the U.S., as customers, because, of course, there is constantly uh, uh, a drive to get more money for universities. So they have to cater to the students and to the students' wishes. So this, this may be, you know, a situation where uh, students' uh, complaint has been paid attention to more than is warranted. Anyway, uh, I want to, you know, really wait until we have some more evidence here. But it just is a very curious story that uh, an organic chemistry professor was fired based upon a petition from students and the petition did not even uh, ask that he be fired. So we'll, we'll have to see. Anyway, it is Thanksgiving tomorrow. And at Thanksgiving time, people think of turkeys and cranberries. So first, let's talk a little turkey. You know, eventually we will run out of oil. There's no doubt about that. The earth is of a fixed size and the amount of oil stored in the ground is not infinite. We take it out of the ground and we don't replenish it. Therefore, we will run out. It's just a question of when. When people think of the uses of oil, they think, of course, of gasoline, heating oil, and fuel for aircraft. But you have to remember that the raw materials we need to make plastics, cleaning agents, many medications, cosmetics, fibers, and a myriad of other consumer items are also sourced from oil. Indeed, when we run out, we will be in big trouble, unless, of course, we find alternate sources of energy and of raw materials. And there's a company in the U.S. called Changing World Technologies who are focused on this. The oil we pump out of the ground had its origins in plants and animals that lived millions of years ago. 
Over the millennia, heat and pressure slowly broke down their component fats, proteins, and starches into molecules that uh, basically composed essentially of carbon and hydrogen, and they're appropriately called hydrocarbons. Crude oil is a mixture of literally hundreds of different hydrocarbons, which can be separated through a refining process into fractions that serve as natural gas, gasoline, lubricating oil, heating oil, and even asphalt. Changing world technology's idea is not a novel one. The notion is to reproduce the process that generates oil in the ground, but to do it on a much quicker timescale. If heat and pressure can accomplish this in the bowels of the earth, why not in a machine? After all, modern technology exists whereby the required high temperatures and pressures can be achieved. What is new about the current attempt is that it works. Others have tried to replicate the Earth's geochemistry in the lab, but Changing World Technologies is the first company to make it work. They have built a pilot plant that can convert almost any material into oil, and they have an industrial facility in Missouri that hopefully will be able to do this on a commercial basis. What raw material will it use? Believe it or not, turkey waste. Turkey processing plants produce huge amounts of waste in the form of guts, heads, feathers, beaks, and feet. The amounts are unbelievable. In the U.S., about 600 million tons of turkey guts every year. If all goes well, this could yield about 4 billion barrels of light Texas crude every year. That's comparable to the amount of oil the U.S. imports every year. And the beauty of technology is that it can handle almost any waste. Ground-up computers, refrigerators, plastics, and human sewage can all be converted into usable oil. Humans are an interesting species, aren't they? They put themselves in a hole, create problems, but when pressed, come up with a solution. Maybe this will be a solution. Of course, eventually, it's not only turkey guts and... And, and feathers that can be used, but you know all kinds of other animal waste products as well. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, often, you know, there are <clears throat> brilliant ideas like this, and even pilot plants. Uh, but uh, some fly fl goes into the ointment, and it doesn't become commercially viable. So we have to wait and see. Uh, maybe there is a Nobel Prize in the offing here. One thing is for sure, as I mentioned at the beginning, that we have finite resources of petroleum. The Earth, of course, is a fixed size, and uh, we will eventually run out. Estimates are you know, anywhere from 100 to 500 years, but we don't really know because uh, you know, there's a constant search for new sources of oil within, within the ground. We may find novel sources, maybe below the ocean, it may be extractable, we will see. But, uh, you know, we have to find not only new sources of energy, which of course is, 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 you know, we're focusing on solar panels, on tidal power, wind power, nuclear energy, but we also have to find raw materials to make all of the consumer items to which we have gotten used, which basically come from petroleum. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show.
Okay, we are back. And uh, I think we have Reed on the line for my silver question. Reed. Yeah, hi, Dr. Joe. Um, I've got a friend that's been in the jewelry business, but he works on Cathcart Street. Been doing it for decades. And uh, he once informed me that uh, what they do is they add uh, copper to silver to make silver more workable in making jewelry. Is that anywhere in the, in the that's realm it. of and your that's, question? That's what, that's what sterling silver is. Sterling silver Correct. is 92.5% uh, silver, and uh, the rest of it is either copper or zinc, because pure oh, silver is very difficult well, to work yeah. with. Pure silver is, is soft. Uh, it doesn't hold its shape very well. That's you what Daddy told me, yeah. Copper or zinc, that's right. And if you want uh, silver, so-called fine silver, uh, mm -hmm. You look for the number 995 on the object, and that guarantees 99.5% silver. Uh, it will not be as sturdy as sterling silver, but you'll be in possession of uh, something that is made totally of silver. So that's But you wouldn't correct. get it in a jewelry form, though, right? Uh, you can make it into, into jewelry form, too, but it's not as long-lasting, and it, it will ah. end easily. Ah, Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Thanks okay. a lot. We had, uh, I had another uh, question uh, about Piranha Solution, and I asked what it was. And uh, Nick, who texts us often, uh, had a very clever answer. He said, Piranha Solution. You want a solution to Piranha, you stay away from Amazon waterways. <laughs> well, uh, Piranhas, of course, are fish that live in the Amazon waterways, and they will bite you. Well, that's true. But uh, Piranha Solution uh, has nothing to do with Amazon uh, waterways. So that question remains. You can give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text me at 514-800. Uh, Thanksgiving, of course, it also means that we have to talk about cranberries. <clears throat> and uh, the question that I've had to answer over the years quite often about cranberries is whether or not cranberry juice or pills made of some sort of cranberry extract can cure or prevent urinary tract infections. UTIs, of course, are quite common, more so in, in women uh, than in men. Uh, they can be very unnerving, painful, you know, constant urination. Uh, luckily, it is a bacterial uh, problem, and it can generally be treated with antibiotics, although, unfortunately, there are some bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. These bacteria that cause urinary tract infections stick to the wall of the urinary tract. And it turns out that there are compounds present in cranberries called proanthocyanidins, which prevent the bacteria from sticking to the uh, wall of the urinary tract. However, whether or not this has practical significance is a different question. Yes, you can do experiments in the lab to show that proanthocyanidins interfere with, with bacteria. However, when we take a look at the studies that have been done, and there have been a lot of studies done, uh, reported in the scientific literature, about the effects of, of various cranberry extracts and cranberry juice on, on UTIs, and unfortunately, uh, the results are, are not consistent. There are some studies that have shown some effect, although minor effect, others no effect at all. In general, uh, I have not come across any study that shows that UTIs can be in any way effectively treated 
with cranberry juice or cranberry extracts. But there are some studies that show that people who have a history of urinary tract infections may benefit from taking supplements of uh, cranberry extracts. There is much less evidence for the cranberry juice. That doesn't seem to do anything. Uh, because the amount of these proanthocyanidins present in the juice is not enough to do anything. But when the juice is concentrated and uh, it is uh, water is evaporated from it and the remnants are put into capsules, uh, then you can have a more effective dose. But even then, the evidence is, let, let's just say, it isn't overwhelming. Uh, while there is some uh some evidence in, in some studies of uh, reduced risk of, of urinary tract infections in people who get them often, certainly you're not going to cure the infection. And uh, as I said, uh, it also not likely to prevent, but there's no harm in someone who has this propensity to, to try those capsules, but the juices will not do any good. Also, uh, let me point out that Cranberry juice is extremely, extremely sour. And in order to drink it, they have to add a lot of sugar to it. And if you were drinking the cranberry juice in high enough dose to provide you with enough anthocyanidins to block the attachment of the bacteria to urinary tract, you'd be way, way uh, overdosing on, on sugar. So there, unfortunately, there's not much hope there for uh, cranberry juice or cranberry extracts. You know, it is uh, uh, quite often that when you give a talk of some kind, you get some little gift after. And uh, I've gotten many of these. I can tell you I have mugs and water bottles and books and pen pens of all kinds. So uh, when I was given a another pen, after a talk to a group of metallurgical engineers, I thought, gee, you know, what am I going to go do with this? In fact, I, I, I don't even handwrite these days because uh, just about everything is typed on the, on the computer. But it turned out to be anything but ho-hum. This pen is unique. It was produced by 3D printing. And what an amazing process that is. A thin layer of finely powdered titanium metal is introduced into what is really a highly sophisticated machine where it is melted and fused by a laser that is guided by digital instructions, that is by software. And subsequent layers are then laid down and fused to the ones below until a three-dimensional object is finally produced. A pen is a simple example, but in truth, uh, it is really nothing more than interesting novelty. So is a real-life recre recreation of the suit worn by Iron Man in the Marvel blockbuster films. That recreation was the brainchild of Adam Savage of Mythbusters fame and currently host of the TV program Savage Builds. In the movie, described as made of titanium gold alloy but Adams was pure titanium. Amazingly, it was able to withstand bombardment with 45 caliber bullets and the explosion of a stick of C4 explosive just a meter away. And this suit was made by 3D printing. 
and there are videos of it. It's just amazing to see this suit being built up layer by layer in front of your eyes. Anyway, uh, equipping the suit with small jet engines produced by uh, Savage's collaborator, Richard Browning, allowed Browning to don the suit and actually fly. Yeah, there are videos of that. Of course, he's not jumping over tall buildings in a single bound, uh, but he, he does uh, fly inside of an airplane hangar. It's pretty impressive. But still, this is no more than a curiosity. But 3D printed individualized implants to replace knee and hip joints, parts of ribs, parts of spines, and parts of skulls. That is very real. Titanium and its alloys are biocompatible. They have high mechanical strength. They're light and corrosion resistant. Unlike steel or aluminum, titanium can withstand extreme temperatures. That is of no great importance when it comes to implants, but it is of crucial importance when it comes to making intricate parts of jet engines. And these are now produced by 3D printing. And if you want an airplane that can fly faster than a speeding bullet, well, you absolutely need titanium. And I'll tell you that story after we take a little break. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Well, let me tell you about a real adventure <clears throat> up in the air. I want to tell you about the most amazing airplane ever constructed. And that was the SR-71 Blackbird. Although taken out of service in 1998, it still holds the speed record for a plane without rocket engine assist at 2,193 miles per hour. That's about 400 miles per hour faster than a speeding bullet. This plane would take you from Montreal to Toronto in 10 minutes. This is not science fiction. This is real. Of course, it was a military plane. The SR-71 was commissioned at the height of the Cold War in the late 1950s by the CIA in the U.S. At the time, the prime reconnaissance aircraft was the U-2, which was not particularly fast at 475 miles per hour, but was able to fly at 70,000 feet. It was believed that Soviet radar could not track a plane at that height. Oh, but the Americans were wrong about that. The Soviets actually had some good radar technology. In 1956, a flight over the Soviet Union that aimed to photograph submarine and rocket building facilities was detected by the Soviets and resulted in belligerent protestations to President Eisenhower by Chairman Khrushchev. And it was then that Eisenhower commissioned the Lockheed Corporation to build an aircraft that could fly up to 80,000 feet and be fast enough to avoid Soviet missiles. And this project took on an extreme importance in 1960, when a U-2 piloted by Francis Gary Powers was shot down over the Soviet Union by a surface-to-air missile. That almost caused the war. The problem was that at the speed needed to outrun a missile, the body of a plane made of steel and aluminum would begin to melt due to the extreme heat generated by friction with the surrounding air. Titanium, however, would fit the bill. Besides being strong and light, its high melting point of 1,725 degrees Celsius 
guaranteed that it could stand up to the rigors of slicing through the air at three times the speed of sound. But there was a major roadblock. The U.S. did not have adequate supplies of titanium. German chemist Martin Klaproth, perhaps best known for his discovery of uranium, isolated titanium from rutile, a mineral composed of titanium dioxide, way back in 1795. Believing this to be a gigantic discovery, he named it Titanium, after the Titans, giants of Greek mythology. Later, it turned out that British clergyman William Gregor had four years earlier isolated the metal in Cornwall from ilmenite, a titanium iron oxide ore, but he had not recognized it as an element. Nevertheless, Gregor is usually now credited with the discovery of titanium. In the 1960s, the main producer of titanium was the Soviet Union, thanks to large deposits of rutile. Working through spy networks, third world countries, and a clever sequence of ruses, the U.S. was able to secure a supply of the metal from the very country upon which they were going to spy with a plane built of 90% titanium. Well, this solved one problem, but there were still others. The radar cross-section, a measure of how detectable an object is by radar, had to be reduced. Painting the plane with a black paint embedded with tiny iron balls allowed radar energy received to be converted to heat rather than being reflected. And the fuselage of the plane, instead of having rounded surfaces, was designed to incorporate angles to prevent radar waves from being reflected back to the source. A major problem, though, still remained. How to keep the fuel in the storage tanks from igniting due to the high temperature experienced during the plane's flight? This required a special mix of hydrocarbons and fluorocarbons that was difficult to ignite. But then, how to ignite this when ignition was required in the engine. And that needed some ingenious chemistry, which was provided by triethylborane, a compound that explodes on contact with air. At the appropriate time, squirting triethylborane into the engine ignited the fuel, and Mach 3.3, here we come. The SR-71s made numerous flights over the Soviet Union, easily outrunning missiles. They even had an impact on ending the 1973 Yom Kippur Israel and the Arab states. President Nixon wanted to find out if the Arabs and Israelis had moved back from the front line as they had said. Photos taken by blackbirds showed that they had not. Nixon went on to show photographic proof to the leaders of the countries involved demonstrating that their positions could now be monitored. That ended the Yom Kippur War. Satellite photography eventually made the SR-71s redundant, but the titanium technology developed is now used in the construction of rocket and airplane parts and many, many other uh, devices. For example, titanium bicycles, which were... Uh, sort of the, the cutting edge before carbon fiber came along because the, the frame was very light and uh, 
very, very durable. In fact, uh, titanium frames on bicycles are more durable than carbon fiber uh, frames, but uh, they are not quite as light. In any case, uh, today, individualized body parts are commonly made by uh, 3D printing of titanium, as I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, for example, uh, up to recent times before the 3D printing became a possibility, uh, the knee joints and the uh, hip joints that were needed for surgery to replace the existing parts uh, were not tailored to individual patients. They were sort of a standard size. But now with um, 3D printing, uh, first of all, they can scan the body and uh, custom tailor the part exactly the size that is, is needed. Now, it turns out, of course, that 3D printing is possible not only with titanium, uh, which is the, the uh, examples that I talked about, but uh, you can make all kinds of 3D printed objects uh, using other materials. For example, many, many plastic objects today are made by 3D printing. Uh, because you can use polyethylene, polyacrylates, numerous kinds of polymers as, as the raw material to feed into the 3D printer, which then at the direction of the laser, uh, which of course is guided by a software program, will print out a 3D object. Now for small objects, this can be done very quickly. And those of you who have uh, recently visited some of the top science museums, uh, like the Ontario Science Center or the Boston Science uh, Museum, they have active displays of 3D printing. And they will print out a, a small object made of plastic in, in a matter of minutes. That's pretty impressive. Uh, but I'll tell you something that is even more impressive. What about a 3D printed house? Yes, believe it or not, those exist. Now, in this case, of course, you're not making it out of titanium. You're not making it out of plastic. You're making it out of concrete. Well, it is possible to use concrete in a giant 3D printer. Now, this, of course, is, uh, uh, is a uh, very, very impressive uh, device. And obviously, it's larger than a house. And we're talking here not about skyscrapers, but single-family homes. So it is larger than that. And... Uh, the uh, concrete is poured in from the top and a laser goes back and forth and melts the concrete. And then as the concrete solidifies, it solidifies into the shape that was directed by the laser. I mean, you got to see these things on a video and to, to believe it, but it's, it's just amazing what 3D printing uh, can do. So I can tell you that now I have really a renewed admiration for that pan that I was given. And uh, <laughs> I remember thinking, gee, you know, who needs another pen? But now I have a pen that is unique. Why unique? Because the program that was used to design it uh, uh, is no longer available. That was discarded after they, they did this. So I have a, a pen uh, that uh, I treasure because it was made by 3D printing of titanium and it really is unique. Uh, my only problem is that my handwriting is atrocious and uh, I really can't handwrite, uh, but I still look at that pen and admire it. And that is our show for today. Uh, we are 
smack out of time, as I like to say, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.